Welcome everybody to the Gilder Spotlight podcast. I have a super exciting guest today. His name's Chase Brignac. Uh, he has a very eclectic background, starting from NASA to companies like Target and Apple. And now he's an entrepreneur himself, um, founding a company called Chat Open Source. But Chase, I would love for you to give a background of yourself to our audience. Uh, hey, mom. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll give my background. Uh, I, I grew up in South Louisiana, not exactly your typical like Silicon Valley founder background. Uh, I went to LSU, like state school. Um, I, I kind of grew up in a place where like no one leaves your town. In fact, I grew up like basically like right next to Bricknack Road. Um, Bricknack Road is like Bricknack's my last name. And, you know, for generations and generations, uh, our family just like kind of stayed put. Right. So it was kind of unbelievable. I remember from like a, a young kid telling my mom, like uh, from the age of 10 that I was going to live in San Francisco. Um, and I told her one morning and, and she just thought that was completely unbelievable. Just had, you know, I had no faith that I would get out of Louisiana. I was like, haha, you're going to be here in Louisiana because that's what everyone else does, right? And um, so, you know, I mean, my role models growing up were um, my grandparents, my, my grandfather. He's a Southern Baptist preacher. Um, he took me in from a young age. Uh, I left home when I was 15 and, and lived with him and my, my grandmother. And um, they you know, kind of took care of me while I was like in high school and getting ready for college. And uh, then I went to LSU and I, I got a physics and math degree. Um, I was kind of always determined to get out of Louisiana. Um, I grew up in, you know, South Louisiana, off the Mississippi River. There's this place called Cancer Alley. If you like Google Cancer Alley, we have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> right. It's like a Wikipedia page describing uh, you know, like all the pollution in the area. There's, there's a lot of chemical plants there. Um, my dad worked, um, uh, for Shell Chemical and, uh, you know, has like health problems and stuff. And, uh, a lot of our family growing up, uh, had a lot of health problems. A lot of friends, uh, you know, developed health problems because of that. And, um, wow. yes, yeah, so I, I went to LSU to try to escape. Just to... I got my degree there and then Right. Yeah. Just to quickly take a step back, Chase, when you, you had that kind of epiphany when you're younger, and you're like, I want to get out of here. I want yeah. to go to San Francisco. Why San Francisco? Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, it's funny. My, my parents got me a computer uh, in my bedroom. It was like their old computer, so they got a new one. And um, their, their old computer was given to me, and I, I got access to the Internet. And I remember just like for the first time ever kind of having the opportunity to talk to people that were outside of my own South Louisiana culture. And I remember just like really vibing with people that I talked to from the Bay Area. I remember, you know, it, it being a very uh, feeling of like hope and prosperity and, and, you know, the startup founder dream and uh, kind of, uh, just very different than what I was used to. So I used, I used to love the kind of science guy. In, right, right. I'm assuming growing yeah. up in, in Cancer Alley, Louisiana, you mentioned that uh, your family, you know, South Baptist, kind of more 
it sounds like because when you look at the Bay Area itself, it's probably the liberal capital of the world. When you look at Louisiana, it's probably yeah. fairly uh, opposite. Did you kind of yeah. want to? And I, I know that you're vibing with people online, but did you want to kind of just understand? And also, was this around the time that the tech boom was happening in San Francisco as well? Um, well, yeah, I guess I was about 10 years old. So this is 2001 when I decided what I wanted to do. And so Google was getting big and all these, you know, big companies were, were being built at the time. And I remember just being like, wow, this is very different. Uh, I remember growing up, I, I grew up very religious and, uh, just kind of challenged those assumptions, you know, uh, from my religious upbringing. And uh, just kind of saw through, you know, it's like you, you see through Santa Claus as a kid, you know, right. you see like, oh, you know, my parents lied to me. Like, that's not necessarily true. Right. And uh, you think like, OK, well, Santa Claus isn't real. What else is real? I kind of had that same epiphany with, you know, with my religious upbringing. And so, um, you know, just wanted the opposite of that. Wanted something based on science and evidence and prosperity and, you know, new ways of thinking and, and new technology and is, is yeah, that why you that majored was in me. physics? I was always... Yeah, yeah, I got a physics and math degree. For a second, for a hot second, I thought I was going to be a physicist um, in high school. I took these computer science classes in high school to learn C++ and Java because it was kind of a backup. You know, I was like, well, um, I could be a startup founder if I don't end up wanting to be a physicist. And then it turns out that was actually, uh, that was very, very you know, cogent thinking. I was, it was very thoughtful at the time for a high school student. And I remember, you know, later on in college being like, oh my gosh, thank God I took these computer science classes. Uh, so I went, I got my physics and math degree from LSU. And then I went up to grad school. I was going to work on uh, quantum computers. The The guy that I worked with in, at LSU, he invented um, Wright's law, which is like the main scaling law, uh, but but for he invented that for quantum computers. He was he was essentially able to piece together that like, hey, Wright's law also applies to quantum computers, right? It applies to silicon chips, right? And you know, that reduces the the price of TVs if you produce more TVs, the price of cars if you produce more cars, the price of transistors if you produce more transistors. But you know, this law also applies to quantum computers and to qubits. If you can manufacture more quantum computers and more qubits, you know, each additional unit unit becomes addition uh, becomes exponentially cheaper, right? For every doubling, there's like a constant percentage decrease in the per unit cost. Um, so he invented that law. <laughs> I was working in his lab, and I remember thinking, like, you know, in college, like, shit, this also applies to AI, you know, just as much. <laughs> ImageNet um, and AlexNet were what, like around 2012. Um, so I was in college at the time, and I remember thinking, like, "Holy shit, this is this is really going to take off uh, fairly soon." And uh, so I, I went to go get a PhD in quantum computing, but I dropped out and worked for NASA instead. Okay, so there's a lot of things that I want to unpack there, but uh, actually, just sure. how did you? So why did you, or how did NASA come in, come to the picture? Um, yeah. And when you're getting your PhD, I'm assuming you're working with this amazing guy that that basically created that law that can be applicable to AI. 
question that I have is how is that law um, applicable to AI? I'm just curious. I mean, because it sounds like it's a hard, like a hardware thing, but if you yeah, it's like if you mass produce something on a way more inexpensive way, like just if you can explain that a little bit better for my mind to kind of grasp it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I could dig into both of those. I mean, first on, on you know the first question about how NASA came into view, uh, I toured a lab. I was touring uh, this lab, and um, there was a, a neighbor of mine who already worked at NASA. And I, when I toured this lab, uh, they were looking for like PhD students to go work in the lab. And I remember going to NASA Goddard Space Flight Center to their main campus and looking at this lab and thinking, yeah, this is pretty cool. I, you know, I could work here as a PhD student eventually. Uh, but my friend, my, my, my neighbor, uh, Ryan Wilkinson, he was like, don't leave campus, Chase. Just don't do it. Like, stay here, have lunch. I promise I'll pick you up after lunch. I'm going to show you my lab instead. So, you know, I stayed. He, he brought me around the lab. And then uh, his coworker, Chris Johnson, um, happened to be in the lab and, uh, you know, while my friend is giving me a tour, he's like showing me around, like, this is the mass spectrometer, the earth, you know, version of the mass spectrometer that, um, that is on Maven, which is like a Mars mission. That's like, you know, orbiting Mars right now. This is the, the, the earth version of it. You know, here's, uh, the mass, uh, the earth version of the mass spectrometer on curiosity, curiosity, like the robot on Mars, uh, just showing me around and, Chris Johnson walks in the lab and he goes, oh, uh, you're Ryan's friend, you know, and just starts grilling me, just like, just asking me like, what, do you know what this is? Have you ever heard of a mass spectrometer before? Have you ever operated one? Have you ever done this? Do you know what this is? You know, what does this thing do? What do you think this is? And I'm just like, uh, you know, I, I thought this was part of the tour or something, right? Like I, <laughs> I literally thought that he was just kind of showing me around the lab equipment and, um, he does this for like, he grills me for, it must have been 15, 20 minutes showing me around the lab. He kind of takes over, takes charge of the, the tour. And then at the end, he's like, um, you know, you, sh you really should consider working here. And I was like, you mean as a PhD student? He was like, no, as an engineer. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I just interviewed you. <laughs> I was like, what? That's so Are you kidding me? That's amazing. For a job at NASA? Yeah, he's just like, you know, grilling <laughs> me, liked my answers. And he's like, yeah, we yeah. need someone to calibrate this mass spectrometer. You know what that is. You know, it's a quadruple pole mass spectrometer. And, you know, you have some experience. So, like, you could do this. Like, this is, <laughs> I was like, wow, do I need to get my PhD? He's like, no, don't get your PhD. Drop out. <laughs> Come, and this was this was about back in 2012. They were that. That's a that's amazing. 2013, um, yeah. 2013, because that's so. Wow. Yeah, it was yeah, so informal. It was crazy. Working at NASA would be like way more. They'd have like triple background check, ten different interviews, all this. But that's oh, like all that came later. One of the. <laughs> okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. But you pretty much in the back yeah. of your mind, you knew that. Um, what's that guy? His name was Steve. That was kind of interviewing you and hammering you. Uh, Chris Johnson. In the back Chris Johnson was the guy. Or Chris Johnson. Sorry, sorry, Chris Johnson. Excuse yeah. me. Shout out to Chris. Uh, who? Thanks, so Chris. Who Chris, changed my life. Chris Johnson. Was he um kind he of was a just the coworker of my neighbor? 
And my neighbor wow. was the one who was like, you should stay on campus. I'll give you a tour of the lab. Mm -hmm. Right, right. But so yeah, before I knew very it. Very cool. You're at NASA. But yeah, I spent three years there. I was there for three years. I worked on uh, um, Maven, uh, Curiosity, some. Um, Landsat 8, like a couple other minor missions but th those are the main ones and um when you were younger, it was it was were wild you, were you interested in in space and in rocket science because those are literally the oh, rocket science sure. is probably one of the hardest things you can get into but yeah i mean i guess it's tied for you know quantum physicist <laughs> but no i i loved right. space growing up i mean i used to I used to play with Legos all the time and um, build these like spaceships and rocket ships and planes and, you know, cities. And it was, it was so much fun. Um, you know, I, I always had an interest, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I had, I got the physics and math degree and kind of had the background necessary to be a systems engineer and, and that they hired me as a test engineer. I started out as a test engineer and then I got promoted to a systems engineer. Uh, and then I did spacecraft operations after that. So I, I learned how to operate Landsat 8 um, and got certified by NASA to operate that, that satellite. Um, and so I worked on that mission for a, a while. And, and then after that, I went to Northrop Grumman. Uh, I worked on uh, MQ-4C Triton. It's like a Navy spy plane uh, used by various agencies. And then I worked on radios for Five Eyes. Um, Five Eyes is like this consortium of spy organizations, uh, including the U.S., of course. And so we, we made radios for spies and for special forces, I think for the U.S. Marines as well. Um, and so, yeah. And then I went up to, Just, finally made my way up to the Bay Area after that. <laughs> got it. Well, just taking a step back to NASA and Northrop, what was yeah. an average day like? at NASA working at a place like that did you kind of put on yeah. you know was it like in the movies going into like some cool secret facility that you had to like you know have like your biometric fingerprint and like a stamp or like a, a key card all this or how what was like an average day like at, at NASA and at Northrop I mean kind of but yeah it was it was also kind of slow and bureaucratic at the same time I, I hate saying that I, I hate to rag on NASA NASA's a great organization. I'm glad that, you know, they gave me the start that they did to my career. But um, I don't know, like, there's so much bureaucracy that there's not a lot of innovation. You know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. um, fail fast is not an option, right? You know, like, iterate quickly is not an option, right? It's like, um, very different mentality, kind of opposite mentality to the startup industry where you know you, you is, you're you're on a mission and it cannot fail right and you're you're trying to figure out like all the different ways it can fail you're you're mitigating all those things and there's all kinds of checks and you know bureaucratic processes that you have to go through in order to same at northrop really i mean a lot of that had to do with like the security clearance and, and all that stuff but i mean an average day looked like you know showing up on campus badging in Go up to the security guard, you know, show them your badge, uh, you know, prove you or maybe scan your badge. They, you know, green light 
and they'd let you in and you would go to um, the uh, Mission Operations Center, the Mach, is what we called it. And that was where we operated the spacecraft. And it's just a, a giant room. Uh, it's got all these people in it, all these desks in it, all these monitors, um, just, you know, monitoring the, the different aspects of the spacecraft that are, and, you know, you, you walk down the hall, you see like, you know, spacecraft after spacecraft, you, you see their operation centers as well. Um, and so you're just, you know, it's people in front of screens with, uh, all kinds of data on it and, and all kinds of tracking and all kinds of, you know, whatever. And then a bunch of empty seats too. There's also a bunch of empty seats right. everywhere. And then, uh, at Northrop, it was kind of the same thing, except instead of a mission operations center, you would like go into the, um, the, the site, it, it, you know, you had to be very careful. You, you couldn't take your cell phone in. Um, you know, if you're going to like into like a skiff or, or whatever, if you're going into, you go into this building with these blacked out windows, What's a, <laughs> it's kind of surreal. A skiff? Uh, skiff. It's like, have you ever, uh, you know, like in the movies when they take the president to like go to a place and he's like receiving top secret information and stuff like that. And they have like yeah, these secure yeah. phones and secure ways of communication and, uh, you know, like no one can take their cell phones in or take any pictures right, or, right. you know, it's only certain personnel that are allowed in that that's, it's a secure, uh, way of, of, you know, working on classified information. So, uh, you know, I go in there each day and see parts of the spacecraft and, uh, or, or parts of the spy plane. And, you know, you just do your work kind of, uh, I did a lot of um, systems engineering and then DevOps, a lot of operations work. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of automation work, that sort of thing. And that kind of got me my so, start, got me the experience I needed. Got it. And so now after you said after Northrop, you finally made it to the Bay Area. What was that first opportunity yeah. when you made it to the Bay Area? Oh, man, it was like a dream come true. You know, it's funny where I come from, like, nobody does that, right? So mm -hmm. it always felt possible, but extremely difficult. And then, you know, you get that first job, you really want to impress. So um, I was, um, they they hired me at Delive, and I was doing infrastructure, security, DevOps, engineering support. Um, for, for the whole startup. And, um, yeah, I mean, I was there to, to basically work on this, uh, same day, next day delivery program is what we had at Delive. And then Delive during the start of the pandemic got acquired by Target for, you know, wow. obvious reasons to start their delivery program. So we built Target's same day, next day delivery program. And we, we went from like zero to a million deliveries per day in like two years. And that was wild. That was, I mean, you get hired on the target, you get acquired by target and they um, put you through the training, but like every, you know, you like you're the special case. They're like, Oh yeah, everyone needs mm -hmm. to go into the office in Minneapolis, but, uh, but not you, <laughs> you stay put. You, you guys are in San Francisco. Yeah. That's fine. We don't want you going anywhere. You know, just, uh, 
you do what you want, <laughs> you right. know? Oh yeah, this training, <laughs> this is for the employees, but not for you. Yeah. you you're going to do this other special training. <laughs> so that kind of it sounds felt, nice. Though. I don't know. It like it they felt, treat, yeah. Yeah, they treated They're me well. You guys you know? it, was, you know? it was nice. Yeah. I love Target. Target is sick, dude. Target was great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, of course, after that, got into Y Combinator. Uh, that was intense. Oh, man, that was crazy. It was my first mm-hmm. time founding a company, like really, really founding a, co- a company. Like I kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know, dabbled and worked part time as like a founder mm-hmm. in the past and worked for like, Before, you know, with ex- these startup accelerators. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just a question, too, that came to Sorry. mind when you're explaining kind of when you first came to the Bay Area and you're mentioning that yeah. from where you're from, like it's, it's really uncommon. Uh, just curious, how yeah. did your family react when you joined Nassau? I'm, I'm assuming that's something that's really uncommon from where, from where you come from. Oh God, your background. Um, so just yeah, what was their reaction like? I mean, I basically what I did was like, I was so excited that I got everyone like on a call like a group call at the same time i was like guys i gotta tell you something you're not gonna believe it like you gotta get on this and i, I had like eight or nine of my family members you're all on this call and they're they're like what is it what is it and i'm like guys i got the job at nasa <laughs> i'll be working there as an engineer uh you know as a as a contractor for uh you know for for i think it was honeywell yeah it was honeywell wow. um and so, yeah, they were like, what? I was like, yeah, I'm going to show up on the, on the NASA base every day and do NASA stuff and get paid to do it. You know, they just couldn't believe it. I cried. I cried in the call and I, they were just so like shocked and proud. And I mean, yeah, it was, it was so outside of the realm, I think of possibilities for like, you know, there's just not many people like that, that I know of from where I grew up that went and did that. So I, I yeah, it was shocking to them. Yeah. And I'm, when you're explaining that, I'm literally getting goosebumps just because it is something that it's like, it's literally, it's incredible from, from the background that you came from. Uh, I mean, just, it's incredible right. if anyone works at NASA, but especially considering your background, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, Thank yeah, you. I, that must be one of the best the best feelings ever. Uh, but yeah, just to go back on oh, God, to yeah. San Francisco, you're working at Target, enjoying that life. Mm-hmm. What made you get into entrepreneurship? Wow. Yeah. I mean, I guess where do I begin? Um, I, mean, I think I got to go back to. Paul Graham and Sam Altman and Elon Musk. I, I think those were kind of, you know, in a way, my heroes growing up. Um, just seeing the way that you can take the world and make something new, right? And make this thing that millions of people use, right? You know, it's like millions of Teslas being made per year. And that's something that just, you know, without that, founder it wouldn't exist or you know if it did exist it would be very different right or spacex just a truly unique company like if it wasn't for elon musk starting spacex 
I don't think there would be a space industry in the same way. And this is, you know, and, and I say that coming from NASA, it was kind of one of my frustrations was like, move slow and don't break things. It's kind of the mentality, right? But at SpaceX, the opposite mentality exists. It's the, the founder's mentality, the, the, you know, the, the innovation, the, the imagination to start something new. I mean, the gall to think that you're going to vertically land a rocket, you know, after it goes to space, who does that? That's insane. Like back before Elon did his thing, like no one did that. And I, I think seeing that really inspired me. I think, you know, Paul Graham really inspired me. I, I really look up to, you know, Sam Altman, um, and, you know, that's, I think that's what it really is all about. I mean, you can have all the money in the world, but if you're, if, if you see a need in society and you, you fulfill that need and you, you make something new, that, that's like something that gives me goosebumps, you know, that's, that's, that's what it's all about, really. It's not about the money or anything like that. I mean, yeah, you want to pay your bills. Of course, everyone wants to pay their bills, but like, what do you care about beyond that, Right. I think I love that. And I think that's, yeah, that's super inspiring. And I, yeah, there definitely needs to be more folks like you that wants to, you know, be visionaries to create the cutting edge thing. So I love that. Um, and curious too, because being from Louisiana, I'm assuming that maybe a lot of your peers looked up to like I don't know, football players or athletes. Why did you decide to look up to folks like Sam Altman, Elon Musk, tech entrepreneurs? Yeah. Um, kind of these these breaking edge people like that god yeah you know it's funny um i literally i literally tutored some of the nfl football players that are like some of the most famous <laughs> nfl football and the reason why i tutored them was because i didn't give a shit i would like explicitly show up and it'd be like this famous person you know and yeah. everyone was like oh my god you're blah 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 and i i'd be i'd come up i'd be like i don't know who you are don't really care like let's learn <laughs> physics together like here let's go over your homework right and they're like texting on their phone and not paying attention uh, and you know thinking about the next football game or whatever and like it worked out great for them but i i didn't really look up to them as heroes even when i was like in front of them you know mm -hmm. i think i you know i i still think of myself as I don't know like looking up to people that I think are actually going to change the world in a really positive way I mean you know like you can you can play football and that's great you know like nothing I'm not ragging on football players but like you know compare that with like vertically landing a rocket or starting a robot factory <laughs> like I don't I don't think it compares you know and and so I think that was yeah you know, if you can change society in a deep way, that's really lasting. That's, that's what I really care about. Yeah. Amazing. And I think, yeah, in a hundred years or maybe 200 years, maybe one football player out of every know, million would be remembered. But uh, what Elon yeah. Musk is doing, what Sam Altman's doing, I mean, those are going to be, you know, our history has changed forever. So, <laughs> yeah. So going sure. back, uh, you were hopefully for the better you decided sorry what hopefully for the better <laughs> oh yeah yeah definitely i think so um you uh so going back 
you found your passion entrepreneur. Actually, how old were you when you found your passion in entrepreneurship? Like when did, at what age? And did you do anything entrepreneurial when you're growing up? Um, growing up, no. I think I originally wanted to be a physicist. Um, okay. I wanted to I wanted to be a physicist who lived in San Francisco in the beginning, but then I think I secretly wanted to be kind of a founder in the back of my mind but it was really tough for me to like think that it was possible you know like it wasn't even something that i thought was possible and i i took those computer science classes in high school it, even then i was like well i could always try to do like software engineering or some sort of founder thing you know there's no way i'll make it right i just remember like having this total as a kid, like lack of confidence because I just had no role models, right? I knew zero software engineers, right? I knew zero founders. I knew, you know, zero people that left Louisiana growing up. And so it was just so far removed from my mind, you know, and it then only really started to change when I was in college and I started going on to, to trips for internships. Like I in, interned at the National Institute of Standards and Technology up in Maryland. And that was kind of when I started to encounter people that, you know, left their states. Wow. Um, and so going back to San Francisco, you're, you're in a good corporate environment, complacent, making good money, I'm assuming. When did that that shift happened. Um, and I know that you had that passion for entrepreneurship to, to make the world a better place and to create something new, but was it just like, all right, like Target's amazing, but I want to apply to Y Combinator, see how that goes. Or did you have like a strategic plan um, or did you kind of just well, go for it? I had a strategic plan at the time. I had a, a, a co-founder, a different co-founder than the one that I have now. Uh, my previous co-founder and I, we had a, like a co-founder split, super common YC, but we, we had a plan. We essentially were um, working on a, a kind of like a stable diffusion competitor almost using open source models. And um, stable diffusion came out like weeks after we released. We had like, I don't know, a few thousand users, if that, like very small and cute and quaint. And then Stable Diffusion had like millions of users just two weeks later. We were like, oh man, wow. But I mean, they had the distribution advantage. And that was a very hard earned lesson for me was, you know, distribution is, is extremely important, you know? So, right. Um, yeah, I mean, when, when I applied to YC with, with my previous co-founder, uh, that was kind of the plan was we were going to uh, generate images for people. And, you know, we were at early stages, so we would start with logos and they would move to images and then we would move to movies and then we would, you know, gifts and then movies and TV shows and things like that. And we would kind of take over the media industry. And uh, it was kind of naive, I would say, you know, we were first time founders. YC saw that. Um, you know, they were very understanding, very gracious about that and believed in us anyway. Right. And um, just because um, yeah, another I mean, quick thing, I know YC has an acceptance rate of like, I think seven startups get accepted of like a thousand applications. I don't know, but it's like 
harder to get into yeah. than the hardest university in the world, which is probably like Stanford or Harvard. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think, what, what made you stand out from the rest being first time founders? Right. Right. Huh. You know, that's an interesting question. I think, um, I think it was the, the backgrounds and the passion. And during the interview, we really, we pushed back, but in a way that I think was thoughtful. Like we didn't say like, we weren't dismissive of any of their concerns. In fact, we were like, how can we work with you to address these concerns? Right. Um, can we reach out after and ask you questions about it? You know, oh no, we don't have to make any foundation models. We can just fine tune models. That's different, right? Um, this is how they're different. We'd love to chat with you more and, and talk to you about that. We don't need a billion, you know, millions of millions of dollars to make foundation models. Like a lot of these, you know, like open AI, we can just take an open source model as they improve and we can fine tune it and we can, which, you know, back then that was, um, it's like a year and a half ago, I guess at this point, that was like crazy. You know, it, the, the world is changing so rapidly. I think people forget that like what is very common today, a year and a half ago was very uncommon. Right. And so I, I think right. that that stood out, the passion stood out, the background stood out, um, both of our backgrounds, um, stood out to them and i think that they i mean they they really do bet on people not necessarily ideas they know that you're going to pivot they know that a lot mm -hmm. of times you're not necessarily going to find product market fit and then it's going to be up to you as a founder to um you know talk to customers make something people want um figure out sales figure out distribution figure out product right figure all that stuff out and so you know i think yeah, uh, I think that's that's the best answer I can come up with. I don't know. You'd have to ask them. <laughs> right. No, definitely. Um, and then when did you make the pivot to chat open source? I mean, oh, man, how many? I must have made a lot of pivots, um, built a lot of products that no one wanted, um, talked, mm -hmm. to, talked to a lot of customers and didn't necessarily solve any of their problems. And, you know, I think that's a hard lesson that every founder has to go through is like, it's, it's all about talking to customers and, and understanding what their needs are and, and trying to come up with solutions that are for them. Right. And it's not even necessarily about how you do it. It's about the solution itself. Right. And, you know, customers don't care about how they just care about, you know, solving that problem, whatever that pain is, whatever that need is, if you can meet that need, then you know, that's, that's everything, right? Um, kind of walking through the mom test. Um, that was brutal, but I think super necessary. The mom test, if you know, if you're a listener, and you're not familiar, go read the mom test. If you want to be a founder, the mom test is fantastic. Uh, I dare say it's, it's gotta be one of the best books out there for a new founder to read. It's, you know, essentially you treat your customer like your mom, your mom loves you, doesn't necessarily want to hurt your feelings and customers are like that they're like oh this is great when's the demo when you know when's the free mm -hmm. trial and you as a first-time founder a lot of times I, I could you know i used to take that as wow they really want to pay for this right but no that's that's you know that's not the way to go someone says um 
they're interested, you say how much. <laughs> they don't come back right. with a number. <laughs> they're not really interested, right? If they're not willing to take their credit card out and pay or or at least, you know, hey, give me your credit card and I will charge it when it is done, right? Like that's when right. the rubber hits the road, you know, when the rubber meets the road and I just it's 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 a hard lesson to learn. It's a really hard lesson to learn. So I pivoted a lot of times and um, me and my co-founder, Ryan, Ryan's great. He, um, he, he and I met years ago, became friends years ago. Uh, he moved in with me, we we're roommates. And, you know, I think that foundation of trust and friendship is really the right way to start a startup. I think a lot of people kind of like meet and then, you know, Oh yeah. It's like meeting someone and getting married on the second date or third date. It's like, usually that's not going to end well. Right. But if you really know someone and you, you really trust someone, you're really friends. I mean, that's something you can't fake. Right. And, and that builds a foundation of trust for a startup. So as you're pivoting and things are, you know, going horribly wrong and then horribly right <laughs> constantly every day, you got, you've got a partner, right. Someone that you, you trust and can confide in. I love that. Um, so. and you said that, so when you pivoted, well, actually, what this is the question that I was going to ask. What do you think the number one issue most startup founders have when they're starting a business? God, I mean, that is such a broad question, but I think the the biggest one Customer that I see, right? I, I mean, there's so many ways to answer that question, but I guess the way I'll choose <laughs> to answer it. Uh, you know, when I did, when I did co-founder matching before me and Ryan, it was when Ryan still had a job and we, we weren't, you know, partnered up and I was looking for a new co-founder. Uh, I went through the, the YC co-founder matching program and I'd meet all these founders and it was so annoying. I got to the, to the point where I'd, I'd hop on a call with a founder. They'd try to pitch me their idea. I'd stop them. I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't want to hear about your idea. Like, I don't care about your idea. Customers don't care about your idea. Who do you have that you have talked to? What problem do you want to solve? I'm, I'm an engineer. I can make anything I want, but like, you know, my time is valuable. <laughs> like I want to know what is the pain point? How are we going to solve it? How are we going to distribute it? Right? Like those three things. If you don't have an answer for that, like, I don't care about your idea. I, I really don't. I just want those three things and we could, we could figure the rest out later. And usually a founder would hop on the call. They'd be like, uh, what? <laughs> you know, it's like such right. a different way of thinking about things. No right, one was right. prepared. <laughs> and I'd be like, all right, next, you know, like, sorry, this isn't really going to work out. Like, I, I don't know how I can, you know, and, and then some people, they would kind of take it on a little bit, but they, you could tell they didn't really have product market fit or they weren't, weren't necessarily solving a problem or they didn't have a distribution uh, strategy. And, you know, for those people, I'd kind of give them the, the feedback and I'd be like, Hey, you know, I like this and I like that, but kind of have to work on this other thing. Right. And, um, yeah, it took a long, long time, but I mean, you know, centralization of power in, um, in the AI industry is a huge problem. I mean, you, you have a few big players out there that are going to dominate and, um, you know, th there has to be a better way, right? And, and a lot of, 
companies want a better way out there. And there, there's, you know, clearly a need there that, that I found there's a problem to be solved. And yeah, that's, that's all, that's all we're doing. That's all we're doing as founders. We just solve problems, right? If you look at it in that lens, you know, it's not about like anything else. Right. Right. Yeah. I love it. What is chat open source for our listeners that want to know? Yeah. We're, we're an open source alternative to ChatGPT. We, we essentially are much more extensible than they are. Um, and we, we fit more into whatever paradigm that um, enterprises uh, need. So, I mean, for example, um, in the legal space, they have very specific needs. Um, they can't just straight up use ChatGPT Enterprise. They have very strict privacy concerns and security concerns. and you know, that, that's just one example of many enterprises that have these, um, these problems with using ChatGPT, problems with using uh, Harvey AI, problems with using Lega AI. And, and you know, this is just but, one uh, vertical of many. I mean, enterprise is so large and ChatGPT is so focused on consumer. They have their ChatGPT enterprise product, but it's a cloud-only product. It basically is repackaging of their consumer product. <laughs> this is insane. You know, <laughs> this is insane. This is clearly, you know, like they, they almost made it as an afterthought, right? Is what it feels like wow. to me. Um, and that's, you know, when I, when I get on these calls with these customers, that's how they feel too. It's like, right. oh man, I want to use chat GPT so bad. Everyone knows what that is, but yeah. Right. It's just amazing that I think in one month it gained like a hundred million or like over a hundred million users, uh, which is, I think one of the right. fastest like growing, you know, platforms uh, like that out ever. Yeah. Um, but what do you think the the future of AI is? And uh, do you think it's going to be ultimately good or kind of a middle ground? I don't want to say bad because I, don't, I, oh, I I'm think an AI optimist for sure. Okay. I mean, yeah. Aren't you? I, I hope I hope 100%, you are. I, I I'm hope 100% you can... AI optimist. But, but I know there's a lot of people I know that you probably grew up with in Louisiana. I'm from Montana. And a lot of people are really against uh, technology, computers, robots taking over the world. They, they think Terminator is going to happen. Um, and so yeah. I know you're an AI, optimi AI optimist, but what do you think the next 10 years are going to look like? Mm -hmm. um, and how mm -hmm. is AI going to impact that? I mean, I think there's basically two scenarios, right? Um, one where broadly there is freedom and choice and the ability to uh, use the models that you want to use and use them uh, in the way that you want to use them, right? Um, where, you know, there's not this huge centralization of power in the AI industry, just a few, an oligopoly, a few big players that are working with regulators. Um, you know, I think that's a good world. I think that's a world where um, that's a better world, in, in my opinion. And um, I think it's a safer world, ultimately. I, I think the alternative to that is uh, regulatory capture, right? Um, you know, when a lot of doomers talk about AI, they're like, oh man, if we if we aren't careful, the world's going to end, right? Right. I think at the end of the day, a lot of these people are very smart. They understand that like a chatbot is not going to kill you, right? Or if you 
you know, or if it does, it's like, you know, there's it, not a, the chatbot's not going to, you know, come out of the shadows and murder you. Like, I, I think we're years away from deploying these from, from robots and having like, you know, I, and I think that will happen, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's like worrying about climate change on Mars before we've put a human on Mars, I think. You're right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, hey, let's right. let's maybe put the I human like on Mars first, start building up the colony, then we can worry about climate change on Mars, right? Right, right. <laughs> and I think I think the other path that's that's you know regulatory capture is a world with only a few players, um, where there's a huge centralization of power, where they essentially try to kill the industry, right? Uh, I mean, I, I think you see this again and again and again when the when the startup becomes big enough to be the incumbent, they work with, you know, the, the ultimate um, corporation. I mean, the government is basically the ultimate corporation. They're, they're like a corporation. I think Elon, Elon's quote is, um, the government is a corporation in the limit where they have, um, they have a monopoly on violence, right? They're the only corporation that can inflict violence on you, right? So if you work with these government regulators and you regulate the healthcare industry out of existence, right, to, to where no other startup can, you know, can, can kill you, or if you regulate the AI industry and make it to where no other startup can kill you, or you, you know, uh, in, insert whatever industry, there's, there's a pattern mm -hmm. of this happening again and again in our history where... Um, you have these giant corporations that work with the regulators and they they are intent on making sure no one they pull up the ladder right so that no one else can climb up it i think that's a really bad future for a lot of reasons i think it kills innovation it stifles um all the, the ai progress that you know all the the ai companies are saying that they believe in and then i also think it's a dangerous world because if there's only a few big players out there and and there's you know, a centralization of power, then, you know, there's, there's, that, that could be a really bad world, right? It seems like right now, I mean, Sam Altman with ChatGPT, and I, and I know you probably have a, another meeting coming up, so I, we can kind of close this soon, no, but um, it seems like, I know that Elon Musk was on a podcast the other day, and he was talking about his new AI platform was comparing it with i think it's called gronk or something like that he's comparing it with uh Grok. yeah gronk gronk he's comparing it with open ai and how if you ask open ai to make a a positive poem about donald trump it's not gonna it's not gonna write anything up but if you ask it to make a positive poem about joe biden it'll write stuff up with elon musk's ai system it'll pretty much it's it's it'll spit anything out uh just yeah. what do you what do you think of that? Because um, it seems like you can kind of skew uh, data and information depending on what the programmer programs in the AI. That makes sense. I mean, I'll I'll repeat what George Hotz said uh, in a podcast interview. He he said, um, you know, when OpenAI talks about alignment and safety, and oh, this is too dangerous for you to do X Y Z. They're not trying to align the model. So AI safety isn't about aligning the model. It's about aligning you, the user. <laughs> I mean, think about this at scale, right? If you have hundreds of millions, probably in the future, billions of people, consumers that are using ChatGPT, 
And, you know, that alignment team becomes one of the most powerful social forces on planet Earth. <laughs> like, is this really the future you want to live in where like a few people are making decisions for the planet that like affect everyone, right? Or do you want to live in a more decentralized type of situation where there's a lot more free thought and there's a lot more, you know, there, there's, there's different, there's different values being reflected, you know? I, I don't think that necessarily you should have like, I don't know. I, I think this can go really dangerous really fast in both directions. I think that there does need to be some safety guards and some regulation. I'm not for just a free for all, but I mean, you can't, you can't kill the cradle or the, the baby in the cradle, right? You, you can't kill the baby in the crib, right? Like that's, it's such early days and we are just now starting to to learn how these things are being deployed. So, I mean, I think that's kind of what our mission is about, right? That's that's why we started this. Well, I I'm really positive with what you guys are doing at Chat Open Source. I'm really excited with AI in general. But uh Chase, I really enjoyed this conversation. Do you have any final uh closing thoughts? I mean, I really appreciate you having me on the podcast. Um, I know we've talked a few times. Uh, I feel like you know a lot about me, and I now I want to take you out for a coffee and and kind of have a, a podcast in the reverse direction. <laughs> and Let's do it. You. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Maybe we'll set I, that I up next that. week. But yeah, I mean, for um, the listeners, if you want to find out more, just reach out on the chase at chatopensource dot com. If you want to help us build the future. Perfect. And I'll put all of uh, the information that you want to put, I'll put it in the link in the description. Uh, other than that, Chase, really thank you for your time. Mm -hmm.